you know, people often talk about what the impact of COVID will be on the world order going forward. But I, I think the more interesting question is what did COVID-19 tell us about the world order that we have right now? You know, what did it tell us about the world that we have right now that we didn't know before COVID hit? And I think the, you know, it told us a lot of really important and pretty disturbing things. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Franz Cecilia. The COVID-19 pandemic has fundamentally altered the way of life of people, of businesses, and even whole countries. That has all been well documented. What we will focus on on this episode is whether and how COVID changed the US-built and rules-based international system. How did the pandemic affect the global economic and financial system? How did it affect the way that other countries perceive the United States and China? And how does a post-COVID international order look like? To answer these questions and more, we're joined today by Dr. Thomas Wright. Dr. Wright is the director of the Center on the United States and Europe and a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy at the Brookings Institution, with co-author Colin Cole, who now serves as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy under the Biden administration. Dr. Wright recently published a book titled Aftershocks, Pandemic Politics and the End of the Old International Order. This is what we will be basing the podcast on today. And we're very lucky to have one of the authors come talk about it with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Tom. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So I would like to begin by establishing some context to our conversation. So after World War II and certainly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States and its allies built this rules-based international order. Could you please explain to our listeners the central tenets of this order to start off our discussion? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I sort of think of the, you know, the international order is one of those things that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But to me, uh, it, it, it sort of has two phases to it, which result in what we have today. One is after World War II, when the United States uh, in contrast to the post-World War I period, you know, engaged with the world, built a series of alliances and institutions and rules internationally, you know, that served American interests, uh, served those of allies, but also, I think, provided public goods, you know, for the world and were open for others um, to join. That became conflated, of course, with the Cold War, but as John Eikenberry has shown, it's, it was a separate, distinct logic in and of itself. And it was mainly, it wasn't really global as much as it was Western, you know, it was focused in Western Europe and then on the Atlantic. And then of course, in, in Northeast Asia, democratic Northeast Asia over, over time. Um, the second phase though, was at the end of the Cold War when that Western order sort of went global and expanded to Eastern Europe and, you know, other parts of Asia and, and uh, other parts of the world. And there was hope, I guess, for a while that it would truly go global and that China, Russia and others would uh, join it and become responsible stakeholders. That, of course, did not, um, you know, pan out. But I think basically, you know, at its core, that order is, is, is sort of infused by a set of sort of liberal, classically liberal, you know, values. And it's, uh, you know, it, it really is sort of focused on sort of the advanced 
sort of industrialized democracies. And by the time 2020 and the COVID-19 pandemic arrived, this carefully crafted world order was already facing several challenges that you outline in your book. What were these challenges and how were they affecting global politics? Yeah, well, we we sort of make the point in the book that um, my author, Colin and I, that, you know, there's never a good time for a pandemic, but 2019, 2020 may have been the worst possible moment in modern history because it came at a particular point where the international order was already dramatically weakened by um, by nationalism uh, inside major countries, particularly, of course, in the United States with Donald Trump, by the after effects of the financial crisis, which still, you know, had, had an effect really on our politics, by geopolitical rivalries, not just with China, but also with Russia, you know, and even tensions within the West between the UK and the EU over Brexit, you know, and then, of course, the rise in sort of disinformation and social media and the very notion of objective truth being contested. So all of these things, you know, together, this, you know, uh, very deep globalization plus, uh, you know, sort of unstable, volatile politics, you know, meant that cooperation had already begun to sort of break down by 2019. And that's the moment, of course, when we had this massive, you know, global crisis, one of the worst since uh, since the Second World War. And I want to delve deeper into that because um, during past crises, such as the collapse of the Soviet Union, terrorism post 9-11, the HIV AIDS epidemic in Africa, Ebola, ISIS, it seemed that the world tended to be able to work together well and perfectly to try and solve these problems. So how and why did the most interconnected globalized world in the history of humanity critically fail in its response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, yeah, well, you make a good point, you know, and, and the contrast I would sort of draw is less with the end of the Cold War and more with the financial crisis, where in 08, 09, you know, you have the major economies come together, particularly China, the United States and Europe, and try to sort of figure out how to, you know, contain the the um, the financial instability that resulted from the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And that, you know, was imperfect, but it did succeed in in, in basically uh, stopping the, you know, that, that sort of particularly volatile period of the financial crisis. On this occasion, you know, the world leaders were hardly even on speaking terms with each other. Now, you know, we try to get into this uh, pretty deeply in the book, but I think there's a few proximate reasons. You know, the first is that this, uh, you know, pandemic originated in China and China refused to cooperate with the international community um, in January and in February, did not share sort of vital information. It was sort of difficult to deal with. So as long as that was the case, you know, it was going to be very hard for the international community to sort of get together early. I mean, they played a relatively obstructionist role in the um, in the WHO in those sort of crucial early weeks. Um, but then also globally, you know, Donald Trump, of course, did not have a particular affinity with multilateralism or with Europe. Uh, he didn't really see that larger role that the United States can play 
And so he was, you know, sort of out of the game, you know, pretty early on. And then in Europe, uh, you know, health is one of the very few areas that is not a core competency of the EU. And so, you know, they were totally caught by surprise and they really had no plan to deal with it within Europe, let alone, you know, globally. So for various reasons, you know, there was basically nobody at home and uh, no real driver willingness to coordinate a global response. And then countries were so shocked by what was happening and 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 so caught off guard and off balance that they were all scrambling to find whatever sort of local national solution they could find. And so that was, you know, basically 100% of the focus um, and, and no one was really thinking about the international dimension. I think that's a great way of, of synthesizing how we got here. And in your book, you also spent a lot of time explaining some of the effects that COVID had on several aspects of the of global politics. So to start that conversation off, I want to ask you about the global economy. And so in your opinion, how, how did the pandemic and the ensuing economic crashes affect not only the global economy, but also how countries interact with one another going forward? Or how does it seem that the pandemic has been affecting that? Yeah, I mean, this is a story we, we, we try to tell in the book, which is sort of extraordinary. But, you know, the global economy was one of the few big success stories of the global response to COVID. And it sort of happened without much formal cooperation. So we talked to, you know, Federal Reserve officials, ECB officials and others. And what we found you know, was this term kept popping up, which is correlation without coordination in, in that there was correlation between the central bank's responses. Uh, the central bankers were, terror, uh, particularly the Federal Reserve, was terrified early on about basically a collapse in the U.S. Treasury market. In some ways, they saw it as more dangerous than 2008. Um, and uh, in the words of one who spoke to us, they felt the core was about to blow. And they, um, you know, acted sort of early on a massive, you know, scale in Europe. There was less of a fear of the treasury market, more of sort of the, the massive recession that was likely to be caused by COVID. And they responded, you know, after an early um, wobble. Um, so we, we saw this very significant central bank response. And then we also saw in the United States, of course, a major sort of bipartisan fiscal response. And the net effect of it uh, really was that, you know, that, that uh, not only was the recession limited, um, but actually, you know, the markets continue to grow, um, that the economy at a certain level, unemployment was obviously high because of the because of the lockdown, um, but uh, in other parts of the economy, it actually was going pretty strong. And you know, while that didn't reflect the reality for everyone, and while many people suffered uh, considerably during the pandemic, uh, it's important, I think, to understand that um, a pandemic with a massive financial crisis would have been exponentially worse in terms of its effects on how people lived you know, than a pandemic without a financial crisis with some normality in the economy. And so uh, I, I think that was a fairly significant um, success story. The question really is, you know, to what extent has the global economy changed? And I think what it's done 
you know, really is that when combined with these geopolitical rivalries, you know, it has basically led to some uh, decoupling and rethinking about globalization. And that's not just because of the pandemic, but I think it is um, because of these broader, uh, you know, broader geopolitical trends. And we are, I think, seeing, you know, a relative, you know, uh, unwinding of certain aspects of globalization, not just on supply chains, but, you know, on travel and, and other in other areas, even in, in investment as well. Yes, this uh, topic of onshoring, nearshoring has been very hot in the news lately. Um, and I think that it's it's a great point as well that to bring up decoupling. But another thing that you mentioned in, in your book along the same line, lines of in, in this conversation is that wars and conflict did not stop during the pandemic. Um, some states saw, saw their, their crisis begin during the pandemic even. So how did the geopolitical effects of COVID affect these fragile states that were already in conflict? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it really did have a major impact on many of these countries. Um, it had a big impact on um, on developing countries, particularly those countries that had done pretty well in recent years, like Bangladesh. Um, but they got sort of pummeled by the, by the pandemic. Um, but your question really was about conflict zones there, uh, you know, it really did. It really did have a major, you know, impact also. Um, and we talk about that in the book in terms of, you know, Afghanistan. You know, just to take one example, obviously in the news, you know, in in Afghanistan, it basically, um, uh, you know, it 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 stopped and slowed down the training of Afghan forces by the U.S. It sort of, you know, paused. Um, you know, it, it paused certain development efforts you know, in the country. Um, and that, you know, arguably had sort of a negative, you know, a negative impact. More broadly, there was an effort at the UN to try to have this global ceasefire because of COVID. Um, and the US and Pompe Mike Pompeo in particular played a fairly obstructionist role in that uh, being quite sort of difficult because of the favorable references that the resolution was making to the WHO. So there was some sort of drama over that. Um, but more broadly, I think throughout the sort of the developing world, what we basically saw was that people weren't set up for social distancing. You know, they weren't set up for the type of behavior that, you know, governments were encouraging here. And so when they were told, you know, you have to, you know, the economy shut down, you know, they didn't really have anywhere you know, to go. Social distancing was sort of impractical. We saw these large movements of people and uh, and a lot of chaos resulted. So the, the aftershocks there weren't so much from the health effects of COVID-19, you know, as much as it was from the, from the response to it. And you mentioned the United Nations attempts at a global ceasefire um, and also the World Health Organization and, it, and the drama surrounding its involvement in the early time of the pandemic. So this past year was also a very somber yet important year for international organizations. I want to know how their legitimacy and effectiveness has been affected by the pandemic. Could you, could you please elaborate on that as well? Yeah, well, I think you're probably talking about the WHO, which of course is at the center of the storm 
you know, throughout much of 2020. And, you know, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting question because, you know, the WHO has had, you know, has been in the middle of geopolitical uh, spats before. Um, In 2003, in the SARS epidemic, you know, they didn't have cooperation from China early on. The then director general did call out China because of that lack of cooperation that had a, had a positive impact. So there is some precedent, um, you know, there on this. But for the most part, um, you know, WHO has been operating in a world in which, you know, geopolitical rivalries have been sort of muted. And in the 17 years since SARS, you know, China put in place a lot of reforms um, that was meant to make it more effective and transparent and cooperative in the event of a future sort of outbreak. And what really happened in 2019, you know, was that a lot of those reforms melted away. You know, China wasn't really cooperating. And the WHO realized they had a, a regime in China that was actually more oppressive and certainly, you know, at least as secretive, if not more so, um, than in 2003. You know, and they also had the United States, which is um, sort of an America first, you know, administration and more broadly around the world, you know, they had lots of sort of nationalist leaders and rivalries. And, you know, how are they meant to operate in that in that system? Now, Tedros is the director general, Tedros's answer to that, you know, was to work sort of quietly for practical cooperation with the major powers, particularly China, and to praise them publicly and not to do anything explicit or implicit that would criticize them or hold them to account in any way. And that that was the only way in his mind to try to get, um, you know, incremental cooperation, even if it didn't come up to the levels that they would like. And so in January, we had the WHO privately and internally complaining about China, but publicly praising Xi Jinping as, you know, the leader of this amazing sort of unprecedented response uh, to, to uh, you know, to, to a pandemic. Um, that gravely sort of damaged the WHO's reputation in the United States where the feeling was they should have rerun the O3 playbook and really called out China for what it was doing or not doing uh, more to the point. Um, and then that led to this, uh, you know, U.S. sort of attempted withdrawal from the WHO. And it meant that throughout 2020, the WHO was heavily politicized. I would say that, you know, the rest of the world was sort of silent, you know, on any concerns about the WHO because they really did not agree with what Trump was doing in the middle of a pandemic to pull out. But they also had, I think, some reservations. Um, the WHO felt they were in a very tough um, position. So all of that unfolded. And what, what, what the net effect of it really, you know, I think is that um, the WHO has become sort of a venue in which geopolitical rivalries are sort of playing out and they're struggling to sort of cope with, you know, that changed environment. And they don't really, you know, have, I think, a, an effective sort of answer to that. And, and there's a big question, which you might get onto later, coming out of all of this, which is, what does that mean? You know, can we get reforms at the WHO, rely on the WHO in the future, or, um, you know, do we need a backup plan of sorts? And I think that's the big sort of lesson out of the last, you know, 18, 20 months or so. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly what I what I was just about to, to ask, which is, 
given what happened in 2020 and 2019 and how the World Health Organization was pulled in two different ways by two really big geopolitical rivals, what does that mean for international organizations and the international system going forward? What does it mean that they that they 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 struggle to have cooperation? Does that mean that other international organizations are going to have similar problems that the World Health Organization had in future yeah. crises? Well, look, I mean, I think a number of people have pointed this out, and we have as well in the book, is that I think there are real worries now that if you have a pandemic that is basically the closest thing we have to sort of a common external threat, immediate, you know, an immediate threat, and the world is completely unable to respond in a unified way to that, um, that would seem to have pretty significant implications for climate change and for other shared threats, you know, where the danger is arguably as big or greater, but is less immediate or more gradual over time, right? I mean, with the, with the virus, there was a worry that this could envelop uh, the world and kill hundreds of thousands of millions of people in a very short period of time, right? And so there was a real crisis mode. And even with that, it was un impossible to have an international response in the in the political environment that we were operating in. You know, with with climate or with other threats, you know, it, it's a it's a it's not a slow burn, but it's more of a a medium term um, burn, um, and it would seem that the barriers would be higher. So I I think this really ought to raise the alarm bells about our capacity, you know, to respond, and I think we need to figure out why that occurred figure out what we can change and also what we can't change. And with what we can't change, we shouldn't just wish that away. We should try to operate, you know, within those constraints um, in a way. I think the other point I would make is that um, I think it does highlight, and I, I talk about this in a foreign affairs piece that builds on the book, but it does really highlight this relationship between geopolitical rivalry and transnational threats in that, we're basically facing near worst case scenarios in each and there's a negative synergy between them. And that's now the world in which we're living in, you know, so we need a strategy that can cope with both transnational threats and geopolitical competition, you know, simultaneously. I completely agree because it seems that both China and the United States and their geopolitical uh, rivalry is driving a lot of these new trends. And so I want to turn our attention to talking about these two countries, because both China and the United States entered 2019 and 2020 with a certain way that they wanted the world to perceive them. How did these perceptions change as a result of the way that the two countries handled the responses to COVID-19? Um, I know that you mentioned that that in, in, in with regards to China, it kind of uh, shattered the hope that they would that they would be seen as as a responsible or like a rising member of the world order. And as far as as far as the United States, it kind of the lack of leadership from their part also shattered some perceptions. But I would love for you to expand on those as well. Yeah, I think it really was a moment of revelation. Um, you know, people often talk about. 
what the impact of COVID will be on the world order going forward. But I think the more interesting question is what did COVID-19 tell us about the world order that we have right now? You know, what did it tell us about the world that we have right now that we didn't know before COVID hit? And I think the, you know, it told us a lot of really important and pretty disturbing things that, you know, it told us that China would go its own way, you know, on, on, uh, on a pandemic um, you know, that its cooperation will be heavily sort of conditional on its geopolitical interests. Um, that's interesting, relatively new information. People may have suspected it, but I think it has huge implications for the the prospects for future cooperation and what that might accomplish. Uh, with the United States, I think it told us, you know, that here's a global crisis in which the U.S. is not only not leading, but it's actually... You know, the president is a primary source of disinformation. You know, the U.S. is struggling to cope with it, you know, sort of domestically. Um, so that, that I think, has implications. But it also told us that no other major power can really fill the vacuum. You know, Europe was completely unable to fill the vacuum left by the United States. They donated some more money to COVAX, but, you know, they, they were unable to rally sort of an international response. They had huge problems of their own, including, you know, after the initial wobbly period, massive complacency in the late summer and, a you know, a failure to really do very much to develop, you know, vaccines on a mass scale um, that was done by, by the United States. So I think it told us, you know, a lot about the major sort of actors and we also learned that the developing world was just largely left behind in all of this. You know, there was very little attention paid, you know, to the crisis sort of outside of the West. And, you know, while that's improved somewhat since the U.S. election, I think it's still the case that we're not nearly doing enough, you know, on on helping vaccinate the world. So um, I think we learned, you know, quite a bit from it. What lessons we take from it and how behavior changes, I think, is a is an interesting question we don't really fully know the answer to yet. Um, I would just make the point there, you know, that unlike China, you know, the US and Europe have a capacity for self-correction, have a mechanism for self-correction uh, through elections and parliamentary accountability and the like. And the United States obviously availed of that in November, you know, of 2020, whereas China coming out of this, it's not clear to me that they really believe they made any significant mistakes. Um, or that they're likely to change their behavior at all, whereas I think there is likely to be a, a real sort of assessment of that here. And Tom, we now have talked about uh, the how the old international order was formed and how and what COVID revealed about its current state. I would let let's now talk more about what a new post-COVID international order could look like or even looks like. Uh, we talked about this uh, with the central tenets of the old international order. So in your opinion, what do the central tenets of this new order seem to be? Is it or is it too early to tell? Yeah, I think we, um, I mean, it's obviously at some level too early to tell. And it's also true that we're not in a post-pandemic world, we're still in a pandemic world. You know, it's changed a bit because of the vaccines. Um, it's probably only really changed because of the vaccines. You know, if we didn't have vaccines, we'd be facing into probably a pretty horrific 
fall and winter period with Delta being much more contagious than the original, you know, COVID. Um, so we're still in a pandemic world. It's endemic, endemic, I think, to a lot of the world, uh, particularly the unvaccinated part. Um, and so I think that's a challenge we need to deal with. And dealing with that and finally defeating the COVID, I think, will be a significant sort of challenge for the United States and for others, for the whole world going forward. But more broadly, you know, there's going to be a lot of discussion now about how to prepare for the next pandemic, because, of course, the next pandemic, you know, there, there's no reason there won't be another one. There's still vulnerabilities clearly out there, whether it's in wet markets and animal to human transmission or maybe in labs. Uh, you know, all of that is a potential source of risk. Um, and there will be there are already a lot of reports saying the world needs to come together, have a pandemic treaty have a unified response. My worry is that um, that all of that may falter because of different interests of the major powers and that we may not actually have a unified response. And in much the same way that the UN became a zone for Soviet-US competition after World War II, the WHO and health negotiations may become a zone of competition for China and the United States with very different visions about the type of reforms that are needed. And so my our argument in the book, Colin and I in the book argue, you know, that we need to engage with China and try to cooperate with them for sure. But we also need a backup plan about how to tackle pandemics, even if that cooperation doesn't work, if that cooperation doesn't bear fruit, you know, and that we need now sort of parallel operations that would complement and strengthen even the WHO um, that would operate alongside, you know, it is um, because, you know, really there is no alternative that's likely to yield, uh, you know, uh, increased cooperation. And what that means to us is that you would have a, a group of like-minded countries, anyone could join, but it would be a very high set of conditions and they would commit voluntarily to higher levels of transparency, higher levels of cooperation, uh, you know, higher levels of investment in global public goods and public health, you know, than you know they would have to do under the WHO. They would set a higher standard, and then if a future pandemic hit, they would act in a coordinated way to respond to that, including putting pressure on countries that weren't coming up to that standard at that moment. I. Tom, I don't want to get too theoretical, but I want—I would love to know what does power look like in this new order and how the pandemic affected the way that big countries such as the United States, China, and large powers such as the European Union can wield its geopolitical power. And the reason I ask this is because we've talked about um, the potential effects that this moment in time could have on how we deal with future pandemics. But a, a problem that I'm also particularly troubled by is the rise of authoritarianism in the world and how it will probably need a unified response to be to deal with it. So how, how does power look like and how can the United States and its liberal allies wield that power effectively in this new world order? Well, power, as you know, is always a very sort of multifaceted thing that I think we don't really understand. We tend to um, 
we tend to measure it by things that we have, that by metrics we have available, um, like defense spending as a percentage of GDP or sort of military strength, um, you know, or the number of allies that a country has. But it's more, even on the military side, it's much more complicated than that because there were lots of different components, obviously, to, you know, whether a certain type of asset is, you know, is uh, is redundant or not, or, or, you know, if you think about aircraft carriers, for instance, how relevant are they sort of going forward? There's a whole strategy element, how strategically competent a country might be, um, that's basically impossible to measure and sort of impossible to know, you know, before a moment of crisis. So even within that narrow power element, I've always been a little bit skeptical of our ability to say, you know, the U.S. is relatively declining and China is relatively rising because I think it's, you know, that's based on a handful of pretty crude um, metrics. When you add in this thing that we just saw, the international health dimension, it becomes, you know, massively more complicated again because it's about domestic competence and the ability to respond. And there, you know, the U.S. did pretty badly earlier. But it's also about the capacity to innovate and to invent vaccines that would, you know, that would end the crisis. The U.S. came pretty well out of that. You know, it's about long-term sort of legitimacy and also, um, you know, the ability to put together an international coalition. As I mentioned earlier, not many countries try to do that. Um, But I think going forward, you know, what countries are going to be looking for from the United States and from the internet, from the WHO and, you know, arguably even from, from, from China in some cases, is they're going to want to know that, you know, that the, the countries that aspire or are sort of global leaders are really able to play a constructive role in helping them address, you know, the threat from pandemics or from climate change or from other you know, transnational threats. And, you know, there I think, you know, the U.S. has the capacity to do that more than others if we choose to do it, you know, if we choose to play in that space. Um, If we choose not to because, you know, we deny that climate change is a problem or choose not to be involved in pandemics, then it will sort of get worse. But I think, you know, there, there is that capacity there. And I think that is in part not in total, but it's in part what we will be measured by going forward. Tom, to wrap up the podcast, I would love to talk about the end of your book, which to me looks towards the future in an arguably hopeful manner. Um, What good did the COVID-19 crises reveal? And what are you optimistic about regarding this new system that we're entering? I think there's a few things. I mean, some are more optimistic than others. I probably start out with the least optimistic, but you know, in a way we were lucky with COVID because it wasn't as lethal as the 1918-1919 influenza. It could have been much more lethal. It could have affected young people as much if not more than the older people as the 1918, you know, influenza did. Um we might not have gotten vaccines um, that were effective. There was no guarantee that they would work. So all of these are, you know, reasons to be sort of thankful that as horrific as this was, um, you know, it could have been worse. Now, that basically means we've gotten a warning 
about the threat and we have time, not much, but maybe a bit of time to prepare for future pandemics. And I think a lot will depend on how we use this time now. You know, how do we use this time to to really strengthen our national and international response uh, to this to this challenge? So that's one reason, if not to be hopeful, at least to think, you know, that there's a certain reprieve here that we need to make use of. Um, I think many things, you know, there were stories of obviously, you know, just human heroism and ingenuity throughout the crisis, the development of the vaccines, which is an extraordinary accomplishment, you know, basically a public-private partnership in such a short period of time, you know, that's developed, helped develop the mRNA technologies that may have applicability outside of, you know, uh, the COVID vaccines. I mean, that that could be a very significant breakthrough. And then I think, you know, the way in which while many things stopped working and cooperation broke down, certain types of cooperation continued on, on the financial and global economic side. And it showed our international order is relatively, you know, resilient in that. And then in other parts of the world, like in Europe, we saw a good response to, to a pretty difficult period, both after the early period when they had additional fiscal integration and then with the catch-up and the vaccine after those early stumbles. So I, I think there's, you know, it's not all a gloomy picture. And I think there, you know, there's a lot to be, you know, uh, if not hopeful about, certainly to, to, to think there's a lot of agency that we have over our own future. Well, Tom, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time. Thank you.